you have your Bibles, let's turn to Romans chapter 16. We're going to keep going in Romans, and today Romans 16, verses 5 through 16. And if you don't have a Bible with you, then please get one of those black Bibles on the end of each pew. It should be on page 950 in that Bible. And of course, as always, if you don't have a Bible at all, if that's the reason you didn't bring one, then just please take that one. It's our gift to you. Uh, Let's read together. And this is mostly a long list of names. Romans 16, verses 5 through 16. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponentus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who were with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. When I read this passage, I almost think of the Apostle Paul having stood up and preached this massive, weighty sermon of the book of Romans. And it's almost like you get to this passage, and he's kind of, he's getting to the end, and it's like he said, okay, I'm going to step down and I'm going to start shaking hands now. Right? You have all of these big, uh, big doctrines that show you the glorious things of what God has done and for us in Christ. But now he's saying, look, Look around, there's individual people that this applies to, and let's greet them. That's kind of where we are. We're at the end of the letter, and this is a normal thing in letters, especially uh, these, these letters to the churches, is that he realizes that this is not just a letter to an abstract organization, but an organization that's made up of individual people, and it's common for Paul to greet individual people at the end of these uh, books of the Bible that are letters to churches, and this is one of those. But he greets a lot of people here. He greets a lot of people. And why is that? Well, he's been traveling around. The Apostle Paul's been traveling around kind of the northeastern portion of the Mediterranean area for something like 25 years at this point. And he's met a lot of people, and he seems to have met more people from Rome than anywhere else. And why would that be? Well, it's not that surprising for two reasons. One is that Rome was the most important, most influential city in the world, the capital city of the Roman Empire. And so you're going to have, no matter where you go, you're going to run into people who are from Rome but traveling around somewhere. But also you're going to meet people who are from these places, but then after you've met them, they, they would move to Rome. And not only that, but as, as a Christian, Paul would meet a lot of people who had been part of uh, the church in Rome but had been kicked out of Rome and had to go other places because 
As I've told you before, as we've gone through Romans, this is kind of an instructive thing about the background, the history of the situation that he's writing to. There had been a period of years when the emperor Claudius had kicked all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. And that included those who trusted in Christ, the Jewish Savior, who were members of the First Baptist Church of Rome. They had to leave the city for several years, and and so Aquila and Priscilla were some of those, and there were others as well. And so Paul had met a number of these Jewish Christians who had been expelled from Rome as they had had to go to other cities, but now they've been allowed back. And so Paul is able to greet quite a few of them as well. And so it's not all that surprising that they would do that, but there are lessons here. It's not just that we have a list of names here. There are things that we should know. And so what what I'm going to do today, if you see on the back of your bulletin, and we've kind of got two main points. One says greeting the church, and that's where we're going to go through uh, kind of the the text that's here and what we can draw uh, from these names and what we know or don't know about each of these people. And then after that, we're going to go and just see some broader lessons that we can pick up on from what Paul says about these individual people that he's greeting and uh, how that ought to apply to us and inform our walk with Christ. So one is, the okay, so first of all, greeting the church. You see here that Paul greets the church as an organization, and he also greets the church as individuals. So where we are starting today and picking back up was in verse 5, where it says, greet also the church in their house. Well, who is this talking about? Whose house? This goes back to verse 3. It's talking about Prisca and Aquila's house. I'm not going to say too much about Prisca and Aquila today because we talked about them last time, but they had, had lived in various cities, and in at least three cities in the New Testament, you see that they had church meetings that were going on in their house. So probably a fairly wealthy couple and blessing the church through the ability to have a large home where there could be meetings of, uh, of church people. And so it says, greet the church. Now before I I talk about the the idea of greeting the church as an organization, I do want to say that this is one of those passages that, that, that has kind of been taken in the wrong way sometimes, because you may have heard this idea... If you haven't heard it, that's fine, but you've probably heard it if you've been around uh, evangelical Christianity for a number of years. This idea that, well, if you look in the New Testament, they didn't ever meet all together. Well, what they did is they had house churches, and they just met in a little group here and a little group there. And, and there's even some who have taken this to the point where, where uh, they have planted churches where there's never any intention for the whole church to meet together on a regular basis. That it's just going to be sort of like a network of people meeting in living rooms here and there. And they say, well, that, that's what was really going on in the New Testament. And you can see that because in, the, in Rome, you've got the church that meets in Prisca and Aquila's house. Well, I don't think that's what's actually happening here because you have indications throughout the New Testament that even though they were meeting in houses day to day throughout the week, and it says that in in Acts uh, chapter 2 and elsewhere, you also have in Acts and elsewhere that not just did they meet throughout the week in people's houses, but they also got all together on the Lord's Day. And so you have the church in Jerusalem where it says that they were meeting from house to house, But it also says that in Acts 6 that the apostles were able to summon together the full number of the disciples. This was thousands and thousands of people in this first church in Jerusalem. 
I'll say it again, First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. All right? Uh, and so it explicitly says that not only were they meeting house to house, but they would also come together for corporate worship in a place called Solomon's Portico. So probably what's happening, even in Rome or uh, other cities that, that, that uh, churches were being planted, is that these churches were coming together as, as, as Christians, Christian believers who were baptized, who were in covenant together, who were taking the Lord's Supper together, and they were an organization, but they probably did not have their own church buildings at this point. But they did find a place where they could meet. You know, in the summer, it might be on Solomon's portico, an outside gathering place. In the winter, they might have rented a hall, like Paul rented the hall of Tyrannus for a while to be able to teach there. There was ways that they could do this where on the Lord's Day, they could make sure that they gathered together, just like it says in 1 Corinthians 11, seven or eight times, when you come together, when you all come together. And even tells them, if you're not going to take the Lord's Supper the right way, then just go back to your house. Right? But he's uh, the, uh, built into that is this idea they're going to gather together. So it seems like what they were doing is, is on the Lord's Day, churches would have a corporate gathering place for corporate worship, and then throughout the week they would have church meetings, and they didn't have their own building, so they were going to do that in people's houses. So that's all a little bit of a side note, but just to say, don't get too carried away with what the early church was and, and, uh, and, and you know, how we need to sell our building and just meet in living rooms or something like that when you see these things like greet the church in their house. What it probably means is just that throughout the week that they were having church gatherings in their home, which is fantastic. It is, it is them uh, using the gift of hospitality to serve the church. And so we praise God for that. But what it says here, there's a command here in verse 5, not just this idea, this historical uh, curiosity of how were they meeting back in the first century, but the command, greet the church. Greet the church. Now, he's going to tell them to greet lots of individuals, but he also says, greet the church. And so you see here, there, there is this idea of greeting not just the individuals, but the organization. Uh, the, the collective entity, the group, the institution that is the church. And, and this greeting, this has to do with an idea of, of a warm, loving welcome. What is it when you greet somebody? Well, there, you know, you could say, uh, hello, but secretly just be grudging that you had to, had to see that person's face today. That's not the kind of greeting that this is talking about. This is a, wow, I am happy that this person exists in the world with me, and I am happy at the prospect that we could be together. And he says not just to greet the individuals, but to greet the group, to greet the church, greet the organization. Now, here's a question. Is the church an organization, or is a church a bunch of individuals? Well, the answer is it's both. It is both an organization and a bunch of individuals. And, and there may be problems with the organization, and there may be problems with some of the individuals. And in fact, I, I heard Kevin DeYoung say in, in a sermon that I saw some clips from this week, you know what, it's not just that sometimes there are some problems, but pretty much any problem that you can think of at all has existed in some church somewhere and in some church people somewhere. 
It's just a sad reality, but it is the case, and yet the Bible calls us to love the church because it is the bride of Christ, to greet the church. Right? There are some people who say, well, I love God, but I don't like organized religion, or I love God, but the church is full of hypocrites, and I don't want anything to do with those people. Well, do you know who organized the religion? God. God is the one who did it. And he, he calls the church the bride of Christ. He, he says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It says that Christ, Christ said in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if anybody claims that they love God, but then they're intentionally distancing themselves from the church, here's what the Bible says about that in 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, on the other hand, as opposed to distancing ourselves from the church, we can greet the church. We can lovingly walk with the church. We can be on the side of the church, both the organization and its individual members the members of the body, and the body as a whole. Now, some of you are saying to yourself, does this mean that we should love the organization of the Catholic Church or the organization of the Eastern Orthodoxy or something like that? Well, I should clarify what I mean by church here. When I say church, I'm, I'm, I have in the back of my head, and I should make it explicit here, the definition that the reformers used, that a church is a, uh, a place where the gospel is rightly preached and the ordinances are rightly exercised. But the gospel is the center of that, where you have a church that is coming together around the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus says, I will build my church. I love my church. We're also called not just to love the idea of the church as a group and an organization. We are called to do that, but we're also called to love and to greet the church as individuals. And so let's start talking about those individuals. Let's go through verses 5 through 15, and let's see who these individuals are that Paul greets. The first ones that are mentioned, he said, the church in their house. And I'm actually going to go back to verse 3 and say, and Aquila. They're greeted here. And as I said, we talked about them last week, but these were close friends of Paul. Uh, they had the same profession as Paul, tent maker, which Paul did when he needed additional money to be able to continue his Christian mission. He was a tent maker. And they, they did this well. They hosted church meetings in their homes. They were faithful in their doctrine. They were faithful in their, their work. They were able to do things like help Apollos to be able to understand the gospel more clearly, to become a better preacher. So a faithful couple. And then in verse, uh, verse 5, after he says, greet the church in their house, he says, greet my beloved Epanetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. This is the only mention of him in the Bible. It says that he was the first one to believe the gospel in Asia which was the name of a Roman province in what is today Western Turkey. Uh, there's some people who have said probably he was in the city of Ephesus. Maybe he learned the gospel from Priscilla and Aquila when they got kicked out of Rome and started spreading the gospel where they went. We don't know for sure. But it is interesting that out of that whole region, 
where eventually you would have just this, this flourishing number of churches. And you may know that the, the Revelation chapter 2 and 3 contains seven letters to Jesus, or excuse me, from Jesus to seven churches. And there are these churches in this area, in Asia. And you know what? There was one guy who was the first one to come to faith in Jesus in that whole region, and this is him, Epanitus. And that's all we know about him, but it is an encouragement, I think, that we can share the gospel in places where nobody believes yet, among peoples where nobody believes yet, in, in, in situations where it seems unlikely that anybody around here is ever going to believe. There was literally nobody in that whole province of the Roman Empire that was called Asia who believed the gospel, but somebody went and shared the gospel. And Epanitus was the first guy to believe before there was ever even a church there. And then God brought it together. And who knows what God would will to build if we are faithful to share the gospel where nobody yet believes and faithful to send the gospel through these missionaries who are going to where there are no believers. Next thing it says, verse 6, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. That's a really common name back in the first century especially among the Jewish people. And so it's, we don't really know who exactly this is, but she does seem to be a hard worker for the church, a hard worker for Christ, similar to Phoebe. Then he says in verse 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Andronicus and Junia are probably a married couple, uh, although there's some speculation that maybe these Maybe the name Junia could be a male name, or we, we just don't know for sure, but probably a married couple. And when he says they're my kinsmen, he's, Paul is saying these are, these are among my fellow Jewish people who have trusted in Christ. And he says also fellow prisoners. Wish we had more information about what it means that they were fellow prisoners. We, we don't know exactly when they went to prison, but apparently just like Paul had been in prison at various times for preaching the gospel uh, this couple had gone through that suffering as well for the name of Christ. And they were well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. There, there are some out there who, who twist kind of a little ambiguous bits of the Greek grammar here into trying to say that Andronicus and Junia were themselves apostles. And they would then jump from that to say, well, Junia must have been a female, and she was an apostle, and therefore feminism in the church. Uh, guys, that's a big stretch, okay? Beware of those kinds of things that depend on little bitty peculiarities of uncertainties in Greek grammar. This is not teaching that these were apostles. The idea here is that these were two people, probably who were from Jerusalem, who had been believers in Christ in those early days when the 12 apostles were the 12 elders of the church at Jerusalem, back before Paul believed, when he was still mainly known by the name Saul, and when he was still mainly known not as a believer in Christ, but as a persecutor of the church, zealously opposing that. Andronicus and Junia seemed to be some of those who were there suffering the kinds of persecutions that Paul himself was, was doling out at the time until Jesus wrote, met him on the road to Damascus. But he says, they were in Christ before me. Then he says, greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Now it doesn't say to greet Aristobulus, 
but to greet those who belong to the family or who are from him or from his household. And so Aristobulus may not have been a believer, but people in his household were. And it's possible that this is the same Aristobulus who was the brother of King Herod Agrippa. And if that's the case, then he had died a few years before Paul wrote this letter. But it seems that there were some who were in his household who uh, were, were a noteworthy collection of Christian believers. And so Paul is saying, send greetings to them. Verse 11, he says, greet my kinsman Herodion. This is probably a male servant of one of the Herods. The Herods were kind of a group of, uh, of ruling kings over various provinces, and, uh, and so this is probably one of their servants. But that's about all we know. And then it says, greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Now this is probably a similar situation to Aristobulus' household. So Narcissus was the name of a prominent member of the court of the emperor Claudius, Remember that same Claudius who had expelled all of the Jews from Rome? And both Claudius and Narcissus had had died before Paul wrote this letter. But it seems that there were people among his household. Servants, family members, we don't know. But those who were were from that household uh, who had believed in Christ. And Paul says, greet them. And then verse 12, he says, greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Now, I, I would have absolutely no way to know this just by looking at it, but scholars who are much, much smarter than me say that those names suggest that these two women were probably twins and were probably either slaves or freed slaves. But that's about all that we know. And then it says, greet the beloved Persis, also in verse 12, who has worked hard in the Lord. And again, we just don't really know much about this person, But this person is recorded here as a hard worker in the Lord. Then verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. I'll put a pin in chosen in the Lord because we're going to come back to that, all right? But this Rufus, it, it, it may be the son of Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene was the man who got pulled out of the crowd in Jerusalem as Jesus was being led off to his crucifixion. And as Jesus had been beaten with these lashes across his back and had gotten so weak and in such pain that he wasn't able to carry his cross any longer and he collapsed under its weight, Simon of Cyrene was the man who was pulled out of the crowd to carry Jesus' cross for him. And in the Gospel of Mark, it names two of Simon's sons, and Rufus was one of them. And this very well might be him. This may be the same Rufus. He may have moved now uh, to Jerusalem, I mean, excuse me, to Rome, and to be a member of the church there. And then in that same verse, verse 13, it says, To greet his mother, greet Rufus' mother, who has been a mother to me as well. That's pretty cool. That, that's really beautiful. That's another thing we'll, we'll kind of put a pin in for now. But this woman had been such a blessing to Paul that he speaks of her as something of a mother in the faith to him. Verse 14 says, Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with him. Anybody else want to come up here and read this list of names for me? This is one of those situations, I always tell people, if you don't know how to pronounce a name in the Bible, the correct way to pronounce it is with confidence. Okay. 
But this, this uh, group of people mentioned in verse 14, another group that each one, even though their names are recorded here in Scripture, we just really don't know anything about them outside of this verse, uh, except one or two of their names indicate that they were probably a slave uh, or perhaps a freed slave. And then verse 15, greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Now, it's possible that Philologus and Julia are a married couple. It's possible that Nerus and his sister are their children. And it's possible that this family kind of hosts church meetings in their house, just like Prisca and Aquila do. It's possible that Olympus is somebody who is a regular part of those meetings at their house. But again, we just don't know. We, we don't really know more information, except that Paul knew them and sends his warm greetings to them. So out of all of this, there's, there's very little that we know about most of these individuals, but we do know that all of them were worth greeting. All of them were worth greeting, and the main reason they're worth greeting is because they're in Christ. Because Jesus has loved them and laid down his precious life for them and shed his blood for them. And so Paul extends these warm greetings, and this is a good lesson to us too. Uh, all of the individuals in the church... All of the believers that God has put into our life and into our church family are worth valuing and worth treating with respect, worth treating with Christian love. So don't despise the church. Don't despise its people. And we should love the church as an organization because Christ laid down his life for his bride and he said, I will build his church. But we, we also need to love the individuals because these are the sheep for whom Christ died, who will hear his voice and follow after him. He laid down his life for us. And how does it say to greet one another? Well, verse 16, verse, the first part says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What do we do with that? Well, if you're an introvert, don't get too worried. If you're an extrovert, don't get too excited. And if you're a creepy man looking for Bible verses to quote to Christian ladies, this is actually not the one for you. Don't do that. That's part of why it says holy. The word holy is very important here. But the kiss greeting was just part of the custom at that time. And it's still a, a common custom all over Europe today. And it's still a common custom all over New Jersey today, especially if you grew up in an Italian family. You know, you've got this thing where there's the bump on one cheek and the bump on the other cheek, and you're kissing the air when you do that. And if you grew up around here, then, then that's not so strange to you, but that it is strange in the rest of America. And you should know that <laughs> it's not just Italians. I, I know, I know. But, uh, you know, when, when we first moved to New Jersey in 2013 and, and people started greeting us that way, uh, it, was, it, it was just kind of like, wait, wait a second. Real people do this? It's not just TV and movies? Wow, okay. But that, that kind of raises the question. The reason I tell you that is not to just you know, renew your intense awareness that I am an outsider. I know you already know that. But to, to ask the question, uh, since that's not a greeting that I was used to until 10 years ago, does that mean that I had never obeyed Romans 16, 16, before we moved to New Jersey, 
greet one another with a holy kiss? Well, the answer is no. This is not saying, hey, here is the proper one way to greet one another as Christians. It must be the cheek bump with the air kiss. No, it's saying, hey, in culturally appropriate, warm, familial kinds of ways, extend your loving greeting to one another. That's the idea here. I've heard a bunch of preachers summarize this as saying, greet one another with a holy handshake. And, and that is appropriate. That's a good way to do that. It could be a handshake. It could be a fist bump. It could be the, the cheek kisses. It could be a hug in certain situations. But here's, here's how we sum it up. Greet each other in a warm way that's appropriate socially and, as it says, with a holy kiss, right? Appropriate for maintaining holiness and purity. The, the bigger point, though, than the social custom of how exactly should we greet each other is this, that we should greet each other. That, that we should welcome one another. And this is part of loving one another. This, in fact, verse 16, is one of about 45, there's different ways to count them, something like 45 verses in the New Testament that we call the one another passages. These commands throughout the New Testament of how it is that we are to treat one another as fellow church members, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And one thing that's very important to know is that you cannot obey the one another commands if you refuse to come to church. Now, it could be that God would sometimes keep you home from church. We have some people who God has kept home from church today with sickness and and other kinds of circumstances. That's not what I'm talking about. What, what I'm talking about is that if you say to yourself, yeah, I could go be around those church people. I could worship God there today, or I could be by myself, and that sounds great. Or I could be at this sporting event, and that sounds great. Or I could fill in the blank. Well, you, you cannot be in obedience to Romans 16, 16, no matter how you interpret the, the holy kiss. You cannot be in obedience to it if you're intentionally absenting yourself from the church. We have to greet one another. We have to be with one another in order to obey those 40-some commands of what we are to do with one another as Christians. We are to love one another, right? Jesus didn't say they will know that you are Christians by your ability to point out all of the hypocrisy of all of the churches. He said they will know that you are Christians by your love for one another. And this is a command that has to do with that to greet one another with that holy kiss. Now, when you do come to church, you could also be in disobedience to this command if you just come, stay silent, get out of the room as fast as you can at the end. Don't talk to anybody. You you could also be in disobedience to this command if you do talk to people and you are rude or you're inappropriate or you are not loving toward one another. But there is a command here that we instead seek to build each other up, to love each other, to greet each other in a way that's warm, that's going to show, hey, I care about you. I may not know you as well as I know that person over there, but I'm still going to greet you. I'm still going to greet you with uh, this, this warm affection. And then at the end of verse 16, not just greeting individuals, but there's this idea of churches greeting one another. He says, all the churches of Christ greet you. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I don't think that this is... Uh, you know, Paul saying, uh, you know what, I specifically asked this every single church in existence, do they greet you, the church in Rome? No, but I, I, I do think that he's saying, you know what, everywhere I go, 
people are aware that I'm hoping to get to Rome and all of these churches have an affection for you. They, they've, you know, maybe a whole church full of people who have never met any of the people from the church in Rome, but, but they know, hey, there's, there's brothers and sisters in Christ there and they're seeking to be faithful. And so Paul, when you go there, tell them we said hello. Tell them that, that we over here in Ephesus are praying for them in Rome. Tell them that, you know, that, that we over here in Corinth and wherever else, that we're, we're praying for them. And so this was, this was happening among the churches. The, each individual congregation was aware that they were not the only people in the world who were serving God. They were in communication with each other. They were advising each other. They were helping each other. They were loving one another, praying for each other. And there's this willingness to greet each other. And we can, we can still do that. We can still learn from that. It is possible sometimes for churches to kind of get in their own bubble where, where we start thinking like, well, this is the only church in the world or the problems that we have, or we just have to figure out on our own as though nobody else has ever been through them and we can't ask anybody or, or, or to, to kind of get in our own bubble to where we neglect to pray for others. But we don't want to do that. We want to recognize, hey, Christ values this church and he values these other churches that are also seeking to be faithful to him and preaching the gospel. That's one of the advantages that we have in being part of an association of churches. Our association is called FIRE, the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. And that's one of the things that we try to do every week is to pray for at least one of the churches that we're in association with. And of course, there's other churches that we can lift up to God in prayer and greet many, many other churches that are faithful in the gospel. So all of that, I've kind of been through this, this whole thing, all the verses now, but I'm not going to let you go yet. I'm sorry about that, because we have some lessons that we can draw from this list of names. It's easy when you come to a list of names to just think it's a list of names, but there are things that we can be built up in in Christ here. One is this that these who are listed are converts approved in Christ and chosen in the Lord. All right, so this is a few things that are said of some of these believers who are mentioned here. And it, it doesn't mean that just because this person has this thing said of them and this person has that thing said of them, that those are the only individuals that this is true of. These are things that are true of everyone who is in Christ. It says in verse 5 that Epanetus was the first convert in Asia, or the first one who came to the Lord in the province of Asia. But just a reminder, this is the reality for everyone who is a Christian, everyone who is rightfully a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that they've been converted. And one of the things to know about that is that there was a time when all of them were not converted, and there is a time when every single one of us was not converted. Whether you grew up in a, a completely unbelieving, God-hating house, or whether you grew up in a family that was, that was faithfully in church every week and reading the Bible at home, you were once lost in your sin and separated from Christ. Why do I say that? Because that's the whole gist of the first uh, two and a half chapters of the book of Romans is that wh whether somebody was uh, you know out on an island in a tribe by themselves with no contact whatsoever with the gospel or whether they were growing up in a household where they were taught the law of God every day that every single human being is a sinner all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
And the, the way to be right with God is, is not that we could just get godly and get righteous and get law-keeping. The way that we are right with God is that Christ has come to lay down His life. Christ has come to be the propitiation for our sins, to be received by faith. I'm, I'm quoting Romans 3 there. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice the propitiation means the sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God that is justly owed to us for our sins. He paid it on the cross, and how do we receive it? We receive it by faith, it says. When we come to have faith in Jesus, which is trusting in Him alone for our salvation, recognizing that our minds were wrong, we need to change our minds about everything, and that we especially were wrong about the value of sin, and that we need to be forgiven of it and not just figure out how to operate with it. All of those things, we, what I'm saying is you, you must be born again. This is the, 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 the essence of what I'm trying to tell you. If Epanetus was the first convert in Asia, well, everybody must be converted. Another way that Jesus put it is you must be converted and become like little children. Uh, you, you must be born again. Jesus said to, to a religious leader in Jerusalem named Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so each of these people had been lost in darkness and sin and actually headed for hell until God intervened and his spirit made them born again to come to Christ in faith. And you need to come to Christ in faith. You must be born again. So if you are not converted today, turn to Christ. That's, this can be the reality for you, that you can be forgiven and have eternal life by faith in Christ. And if you are converted, this is a good opportunity to remember, everybody in the church in Rome had to get converted. Everybody in the church in Madawan had to get converted. And that's how we have eternal life. And it's, it's, it ought to just drive us to the grace of God. Converted, approved, as it says of Apelles in verse 10. Approved carries this sense of approval from God, but not just approval, but approval that comes through testing. God will take you through testing as a Christian. If you think that you come to God and there will be no testing, there will be no difficulty, you have been lied to about what you're signing yourself up for. That's why Jesus says you need to count the cost. You must take up your cross and follow me. There will be testing. But those who are in Christ are going to stand the test. They're going to be approved just as a palace was. It says this in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Another thing that's true about every one of the Christians on this list and every Christian ever who is a Christian in God's sight is what it says about Rufus in verse 13. Chosen in the Lord. If you have believed in Jesus and been saved, there is one thing that is the root reason why you have believed. It's that God chose you from before the foundation of the world. It says that in Ephesians chapter 3, which I just put at the back of my sheets. Here's what it says. Excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1. Sorry about that. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is a fact. If, if you've come to Christ, 
one of the things that we can continually be in awe of before God and thankful to God for is his electing grace. If he had left it up to you and your free will, you would have continued to choose sin and death and hell. That's what our free will would have gotten us. But God, by his grace, chose a people for himself from before the foundation of the Lord. Not just Rufus, but all the people on this list and all believers of all time. Another thing that we can see from this, this list of names is a little bit of the other parts of the description of these believers who are here is that they were hard workers and faithful sufferers. It says of Mary in verse 6 that she has worked hard for you. It says of Urbanus in verse 9, our fellow worker in Christ. And when I read those things, I'm tempted to just think, okay, there's, there's a few people here and there that seem to be among that, uh, that 10% who do 80% of the work, right? But I don't think that's what it's saying. I think this is saying, hey, th- this person has demonstrated their faith and their faithfulness in Christ by their hard work for the Lord and their willingness to serve. And this is going to be a reality for, for all of us who are in Christ, is, is that when, when we have that grace of God in Christ, that we're going to be willing to work for Him and to count it all joy as we work for Him. And not only to count it all joy as we work for Him, but to count it all joy as we suffer for Him. Which is part of what it talks about with Andronicus and Junia in verse 7. It says, they were my fellow prisoners. They had been not just through trials in various ways, but through trials of even being thrown into prison for the sake of the name of Christ. And you know what they did? They stood the test, and as James 1 says, we can count it all joy when we suffer for the Lord. Another thing we can, we can learn, all this, by the way, if you're wondering, how do I remember all these things? It's, why, it's, on, it's on the back of your bulletin, all right? Um, that this is a family of God. As, as these names are listed, there is this familial kind of language that's here. Last week, we, we noted that at the beginning of chapter 16, that Phoebe, who was traveling from Paul to the church in Rome, uh, that, that Phoebe was called our sister in the Lord. And, and we talked there about how when we come to faith in Christ, that, that we are not just random people who happen to get together. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ. You, you once were not a people, but you are God's people. He has adopted us into his family. That's the language that it uses in Romans and in Ephesians and in other places. He's adopted us as his children, and and therefore we have not just a relationship with God our Father, but also a relationship with one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the church has an element of being the family of God. There's also this language about Rufus's mother, in verse 13, that Rufus's mother has been a mother to me as well, probably meaning that she had cared for Paul like a mother. And Paul in other places talks about this, this kind of familial kind of relationships between people in the church, like when he says to, to Timothy, Timothy is kind of the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus, Maybe the, the main preaching pastor would be the best way to put that. He says in, in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters, in all purity. 
And so there's this idea that as we look around at the church, that we should say, this is my church family. This is one of the reasons that it doesn't make much sense, one of many reasons why it actually it doesn't make much sense when people say, well, I think the church ought to be run like a business. Now, there's, there's elements, you know, we need to do things well when we do our accounting and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, thank you to, I'm looking at two right here who do the accounting. Thank you. You do that well. Uh, but at the same time, we're not going to start saying, hey, these members have really not been holding up their weight. We're going to fire them and bring in people who are better workers. You know, you can't run the church like a business. It's, it, 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 this is the family of God. At the same time, it's, it's not literally a family. You can't get confused between your actual family and your church. You're not supposed to replace the people that God has given you familial relationships with the church and say, hey, sorry, family, I'm not coming at Christmas because I have a church family now. That's cult kind of stuff, all right? Um, and, and also, you can't say to yourself, okay, the church is the family of God, so we're not going to church anymore. We're going to call our family a church. We're just going to stay home and sing hymns. That's, that's a confusion of the kinds of institutions that God has set up. So, so all I'm saying there is, don't get me wrong, don't confuse the institution of the family with the institution of the church, but do know this, that God has given us a kind of familial relationship that's real between us as brothers, sisters, and even fathers, mothers in the faith to each other. And there ought to be that kind of warm familial affection that we have for each other as the church. One more thing that we see here is that there are no priests, no bishops, no cardinals, no pope on the list of the members of the church in Rome. Isn't that interesting? If you look today at the church in Rome, by which I mean not the faithful evangelical churches that are meeting in that city, as, as there are some, but the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church would tell you today that they are the same church that received this letter to the Romans. And, and that there is some, you know, because of the organizational continuity dating back to the first century, that they are this church. Well, you know what? There, there may be an organizational continuity of some kind, but part of what you're going to see when you look at the Roman Catholic Church today is you're going to see this massive hierarchy where, where you've got the Pope and you've got the cardinals, and you've got the archbishops, and you've got the bishops, and you've got the priests, and all of those are put in a separate category from the laymen. And you don't see any of that in the church in Rome as it was intended by Christ and established by the apostles. You don't see any of that. What you see here is a greeting of various kinds of people who are in Christ together who are a family of God together. And so we should just know that this is one of those indications that that thing that calls itself a church that's based out of the Vatican today is not a church any longer in the sight of God. I'll go into more reasons for that next week as we get into the warnings that Paul gave to the church in Rome to avoid false teaching, as the church in Rome has been an established center of false teaching for many centuries now. But I'll just leave most of that for next week and just to say, hey, if God had intended that churches are supposed to have that kind of a great hierarchy, why don't we see it here? We just see a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ who are on equal ground before the Lord. And that's the, the next thing I want you to see is that all kinds of people are on equal ground before the Lord. 
These scholars who have analyzed this list of names that we've just went through, uh, they say that this represents all kinds of people. You've got men, you've got women, you've got Jews, and you've got Gentiles, mostly Gentiles. You've got people from upper classes and people from lower classes, and mostly from lower classes. You've got some people who are likely wealthy and many people who are likely poor. And yet, what are all of these people? Well, they're brothers and sisters in Christ together. When we come to Christ and when we're a church together, we are on equal ground before the Lord. And I know I stand up here, it's it's like literally not level ground, but it's just so you can see me, okay? When when we come to Christ, we have equal access to God in Christ. Uh, You may remember a couple of years ago, when it seemed like there was this one particular very famous hip-hop artist, it seemed like he had been born again. It no longer seems that way, that's why I'm not using his name, but a lot of you guys know who I'm talking about. But, but around that same time, uh, he had bought a ranch in Wyoming, and when he started going up there, when he was there, he, he was attending uh, one of our sister churches in the Fire Fellowship. Uh, just this little church up in Wyoming with a faithful preacher who had been there for, for decades, and when he first walked in, uh, this, this lady came up and greeted him, this lady who had been there for a long, long time, and she greeted him like she would greet anybody else and said, hello, what's your name, how are you doing, asking questions to know a little bit about him. And she said, what is it that you do for a living? And he said, I'm in the music business. And she said, music, isn't that wonderful? Come and have a seat. Let me introduce you to some people. The pastor, when, when this hip-hop artist started coming, had no idea who he was. And when he found out who he was, treated him no differently than he would have otherwise. Because, and that was, I think, such a great example of what we should do. That when we come before God, we're not supposed to bring in all of the worldly ways that human beings rank each other. That stuff goes out the door when we come before the Lord and when we come into the family of God. We stand on equal ground as sinners who've been forgiven by God in Christ. That's where we are. In Christ, presidents are not ranked any higher than janitors. Coal miners aren't ranked any lower than billionaires. And somebody who just believed the gospel five minutes ago has the same exact access to God as a pastor who's been preaching for 50 years. That's what the Bible teaches. It says in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, then when it comes to our personal relationship with God and access to God and being a child of God with a full inheritance, it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Or like Peter says in the book of Second Peter, Peter, by the way, who the Roman Catholic Church claims was the first pope, You want to hear what he says? He says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are not the words of a pope. That's the words of a saved sinner speaking to other saved sinners, saying we have the same access to God together by faith in Jesus Christ. Amazing. Another thing we should do as we look at this list of names is we can recognize evidence of God's grace in each other. This is something that Paul does for various people throughout. 
where he notes these things about being a hard worker in the Lord, about uh, these, these things that they do, about having endured trials, being tested and approved. He, what Paul is doing for these various people that he points this out for is he's saying, here is evidence that God has been gracious to this person. And that's something that we can do for each other as well. We, when we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can say, what grace has God poured out toward this brother? How can I see that in this sister? For all of us who believe, he's given us the grace of faith and of hope and of love. And as we see the graces of the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in each other and, and other things as well, we can bring those up and we can encourage each other. We can also look to see both the forest and the trees of God's work. The, you had here throughout the book of Romans a great big zoomed out picture of the, the plan of God for the salvation of Jews and Gentiles. You get to the end of chapter 11 and you're talking about great big things about the end of history and the incomprehensible mind of God. That's the big picture for us. And Paul also at the end of this letter zooms in on the small picture trees of the individual Christians that God is using to carry out his big plans in the world and in the church. And that's something that we should do as we look at the, the way that Romans is laid out. As we can say, hey, I want to see and study and be invested in the big picture things of God, and I also want to see and be invested in the individual believers that God has put around me for his glory and for his purposes. Well, one thing I, I hope that we can look at as we, as we close and think about is how many of these people on this list have been completely forgotten, other than the fact that they're on this list. And not just that, but there's an awful lot of members of the church at Rome from the first century whose names are not on this list, because Paul wasn't personally acquainted with them, and their names have been completely lost to history. And you will almost certainly be forgotten as well. Sorry to tell you. It's just the reality. Now, sure, the people who know you and love you after you die, they will remember you, they will speak fondly of you, but eventually they're going to die too. And so even if you live to be 100, and, and your great-great-grandchildren live to be 100 and are talking about you after that, in 200 years, nobody's going to be talking about you. Maybe they'll find your name on, on a list in a genealogy if they're interested in that kind of thing. But that's about it. But you say to yourself, well, what if I've done big things? What if I've had a big impact on the world? Well, even then, there'd probably just be, you know, sort of a small corner of people who are interested in history who would ever talk about that. You think to yourself about the most famous people in the world right now. Well, nobody's going to be talking about them in 100 years. Even, even the biggest movie stars, the only people who are going to be talking about them are people who are interested in obscure movie history. Just ask a 16-year-old what they think of Clark Gable. People get forgotten. But here's the thing. God doesn't forget. The list of names that's here is subordinate to the list of names that's written in God's book of life. Here's what it says we're all headed for. Revelation chapter 20, verses 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The things that you do in this life really do matter. But the thing that's going to, be, that's going to matter the most is not whether people remember you. It's whether God knows you. It's whether or not your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's whether you have been chosen by God the Father, redeemed by God the Son at the cross, and brought to faith by God the Holy Spirit. Whether you have remained dead in your sins, by the way, every one of those God will remember. They're in his books. If you're apart from Christ. But if you're in Christ... It says that he casts them into his sea of forgetfulness, it says in the Psalms. If you're in Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And it will be announced in the day of judgment. And you will hear, enter into my eternal reward. Good and faithful servant. Isaiah 49, 15, and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he has come and uh, redeemed everyone whose names are written before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. And I pray that those would be, uh, the, Lord, that, that, that our church would be made up of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And God, I pray that you would give each and every person here a concern for whether their name is there. And as we have that concern, I pray that you would also give us a relief about the grace of Christ demonstrated at the cross. Lord, would you grant faith? Would you grant assurance? Would you grant uh, grace upon grace? God, I pray that as we've seen this passage that lists all of these names and all these evidences of grace, I pray that you would help us to be those who would love the church and love its people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.